Thank you for tuning in. There's so much change happening right now and things will just never be the same. But before coronavirus, we were facing many changes in technology, life, and business practices that we were slow to react to. That is no more. In this episode, we dive into the world of tech, specifically AEC tech, and what it looks like to productize a part or parts of our service. Our guest is Greg Yanchenko, a practicing architect and co-founder of both Helen Carl Architects and the AEC tech platform BidDocs Online. We cover a lot of ground in our conversation, and it's a must-listen whether you are interested in productizing your own service, you're a consumer of knowledge, or you're a practitioner interested in leveraging innovative approaches that provide greater value and help differentiate you in the marketplace. There's so much opportunity to succeeding in this space, but it takes more than just a good idea. Greg walks us through both the strategy and the actual steps taken to produce an innovative and truly problem-solving product that sets its users up for greater success. After this episode, I'm convinced you'll begin to see work and the opportunities for innovation in whole new ways. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Greg Yanchenko, Vice President of Helene Carl Architects, and we'll be talking about the practice of productizing your business. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thanks for having me, Peter. Well, great. Well, we've known each other since um, almost the start of my career um, as HKA was providing architectural services for several projects I was involved with uh, as a junior engineer at Metcalf and Eddie. So it's been great, especially recently over the last several years to be able to connect with you. But with um, as we start the podcast, can you share a little bit about what you're doing now and a bit about you and your career and HKA? Sure. So, um, Obviously, I went to school for architecture, uh, graduated from University of Virginia with a uh, BS in architecture, and then went on to get my master's at University of Pennsylvania. At the time, I had gone uh, ROTC scholarship um, undergraduate, so I had an opportunity to work at Hanscom Air Force Base right outside of um, Boston. And during that time, I had a um, great opportunity because I had a civilian mentor. I did my internship, managed to get my um my time in so I could take the exam and everything. But more importantly, I got to meet a lot of the bigger firms. I, that's how I met with Medcalf and Eddie and some of these larger firms. Um, that gave me a great stepping stone to go out and I worked for a local AE company. Um, but this was a, the late 80s, while the you know, mid 80s and late 80s were great, the early 90s weren't quite as great. And so I'd worked for a, you know AE firm for about a year. And then like everybody else, I'd made the you know, 10 rounds of layoffs but I eventually got laid off. Um, at that time, there wasn't really much opportunity. I always like to put in perspective that during the Great Depression, about 25% of the people were laid off. 
um, during the 90s, about 50% of the AE industry was laid off. So you can see it had a big change and impact on um, people's lives. And that gave us an opportunity to start a firm. I'd always wanted to start a firm and um, it just accelerated the, the process and everything. So we opened our Helen Carl Architects, Helen Carl Architects up in 1991. Uh, the first few years were tough, but um, about the mid nineties things started coming around and ever since it's been full steam ahead. We're a relatively small firm, there's only five of us, but in given year we do about $100 million worth of work um, on various projects, primarily institutional, um, commercial, higher education. And um, it's been a great ride. So here we are now in the 2000s and things are still going strong. Right, so I mean, so you've seen the industry from all kinds of angles since the early or the late, late 80s, mid to late 80s. How, just even in the last 10 or 20 years, how have you seen the AEC industry change? Well, I think the biggest thing is technology. And I don't mean technology as obviously we have Facebook, iPhones, all these you know, great uh, social media platforms and tools to work. But our industry, as I always like to slay, uh, say in our industry, we're um, sl um, slow to adopt, slower to change, okay? Our industry just didn't embrace technology. And technology, again, not as a social media platform and stuff, and I know some firms are out there really trying to push that, but I'm just talking about the tools that are available today to us. For example, um, and I think we'll get into a little later, Peter, we started a company called Bid Docs Online. And when we started that, we, many of the firms, probably the vast majority of the firms were still using dial-up. So to try to download even like a one megabyte uh, drawing or something, took you know at least minutes if not hours in some case so um i look at all the tools that have come out in the technology we have lasers now that have certainly improved things um like i said i think it's the individual tools that we are getting in the industry that has probably been the biggest change um and you know as i like to say anybody younger than me that i call them the kids all the kids that are coming out um they're used to having these tools i mean like my kids they've basically grown up on social media and with all the tools and stuff. So when I explain to them some of the things like what a drafting board and stuff is, they kind of laugh at us, be like, are you kidding me? Would we do anything like that anymore? And the answer is no. So if we're trying to attract younger talent and stuff, I think we have to be as, you know, the, you know, more mature ones in the industry, understand that technology will have to be adopted. And again, people aren't looking for technology like robots and everything to do our job, but they are looking for those tools to make our lives easier and stuff so that we can really focus on the high value uh, items that we provide in the industry as opposed to the, you know, laborious, you know, administrative function and stuff. Because let's be honest, none of us went to school to become, you know, admin clerks or something. And you've been there, Peter, we spend a lot of time pushing paper. Right. How, I mean, why do you think, I mean, whether it be shifting from the, the, the drafting tables to AutoCAD to even some of the new things today, why do you think as an industry, we're pretty slow to adapt and, and how do you differentiate slow to adapt versus slow to change? Well, so, so let's be honest. I mean, we've worked with a variety of clients, like institutional clients, for example, university. Most of the universities that we work with do anywhere from 20 to 30 projects a year. And they're not all the, you know, 10, 20, 30 million dollar dormitories. A lot of those jobs are the boiler replacement, window replacements and stuff. And as you know, everything in our industry is a very expensive. 
you know, and so to replace the boiler could be $100,000, $200,000 and stuff. And so I say people are slow to adopt, you know, new technology and stuff, because if it worked before, why change it? It's too risky if you're going to spend, you know, a million dollars on putting in new windows in a roof to try something that's never been tried before. And because it's so infrequent, and again, I say that's infrequent because, again, a university is doing 20 to 30 projects a year. Some of the smaller towns here in New England may only do one project every five years. And so all they remember is what worked before, so let's just keep doing it that way. So I think it's the fear of the cost uh, associated with construction. And then if anything goes wrong, that's why they're very reluctant to you know, adopt new technologies and embrace change. Um, once something gets established, again, because it's so infrequent, you know, if the system's working, they just keep chugging along with the same system. It doesn't matter. You know, we've been using whale oil for the last hundred years, so why can't we use it now? Even though electricity is readily available. That's being somewhat facetious, but I think you get the idea. People are afraid to change because of the cost associated with construction, in my opinion. So, and, and it's so, I mean, it's like slow to change on the actual project or, you know, the, the element that's being designed and implemented, but that also exchange, extends to the process of designing that and implementing that. Absolutely. That and I, I call it the, the construction procurement process. And I basically put five stages in that. I put the planning stage, the design stage, the bidding stage the construction stage, and then post-construction. Because what people don't realize in our industry, um, you know, the average layperson is that most designers are liable for these projects that you've done or, you know, contractors seven years after the project is complete. Okay, owners still have to maintain the buildings and everything. And so anyways, it's a whole process. I call it the construction procurement process. And depending on how well each of those stages go, will tell you the success of the project and everything. Right. And that might dovetail into the, the next, you know, item I want to talk about. And that's the productizing part of your business. And I know, you know, th there's a lot that got to the point of you deciding to, to make a product to help you in your business matters to help serve clients. But can you walk us through that process? Um, how, how did it start? And, and why did you keep going? What problems were you looking to solve? Um, can you just start that process? Sure. So in 2006, um, we did a mix of public and private work. And here in New England, in particular Massachusetts, um, just something basic like sending out addenda. You would have to send out addenda by certified mail to all the plan holders. And our office, again, being relatively small, lost an entire week of production just filling out certified mail um, receipts. So that Friday evening, I called my IT guy and I said, I go, we are a design firm. We are not a document distribution firm. I said, I have an idea. And so he comes rushing over and he always jokes. He said, oh yeah, Greg, the only reason I came over Friday night is because I know you hate computers. So when you said you were going to do this, I said, that's not completely true. I took computers in college and everything, but nevertheless. So we basically formed bid docs, you know, within the first month. Um, and it was really just to get us out of the laborious administrative functions. Because again, we didn't get, you know, our high value was not filling out, you know, um, certified mail receipts. It was really to, you know, do design and everything. So that's how the company got started. Now people say, well, why did you do? Well, nobody else was doing it. I mean, I had no choice. It was like either we do it and fix the problem or 
I would have gone and gotten a service. But at the time, nobody was using, you know, or I was not aware of any good services that could do this and met all the uh, process requirements. Because one of the things that I'm finding today with the um, advances of technology and stuff, and you'll see a lot of these big companies like Procore and everything else, these are not necessarily industry um, participants that are developing this. I mean, you look at some of the resumes of some of these companies and stuff, and while they may be bright people, they're history majors or psych majors or something else. And they're trying to tell us in the industry how to uh, run the industry. And the problem is, is they've become, it's become very complicated. They let the developers design things. And so one of the things that we you know, push at BidDocs and I tell my developers is, look, it, if I cannot use the application in 90 seconds or less, it's a failed application. And they go, that is unreasonable. And I said, well, most of us don't have time to go to training and most of us don't want to see all the bells and whistles. What we really want to do is just get onto the application, do what we need to do and be done with it with no training and stuff because we have better things to do. So I know I've kind of like mixed a lot of, you know, answers to the, your question there, but I guess it's really our kind of our philosophy, the way we're looking at it. It's technology is here to enhance our you know, experience in our, you know, work productivity. It's not there to make a new, you know, environment where we have to relearn and shift to do things to accommodate the technology. So you, so you're a practitioner that came against a problem, a problem. And the problem is it's taking us all day to submit, <clears throat> to send out all these addendum to a project that we've designed. And now as an architect, as a practitioner, I have to spend time doing administrative functions or my team has to. And so as a practitioner designing a problem solution for other practitioners or even yourself, so that, that's how it started with the, with the sending out addendum. I mean, what, what did that look like? How did you automate that process? Or how well, did you use uh, technologies to sort of solve your problem at that time? Well, first of all, you know, you have to have a basic understanding of the technologies out there. And that's where I would suggest that you, one, use technology go on to Google, use these programs, and find out what works and what doesn't work. Um, you would be amazed how challenging it is just to get started, like registrations. You know, even if the registration's free, a lot of people are just challenged registering on a website or something. If you're challenged just registering on the website, how good do you think the application's gonna be that you use afterwards? So I would say go out there, Find out as much um, as you can about the technologies that are available. And even technology that you may not think apply. If you like your banking app, or if you like signing in and getting you know, your uh, car appointment done online or something, figure out what they're using. I mean, you see like SurveyMonkey and you see, they all have certain attributes and do certain things. After you've done that, I think the next thing is to really define what the problem is. With technology, you don't need to do the same things. Um, I, I look at, um, for example, AutoCAD. If those of you who may remember, when we used to do draft on Mylar, we used to flip the Mylar over to put grids on or pochets or something, because when you erased it and stuff, it was a lot easier. Well, that kind of translated into like layers on AutoCAD, which was great. So that was like a one for one, and that's how that integrated. But the thing is, um, you know, don't just assume that the technology needs to do the exact same thing that it's always been done in the physical world and rethink how you could do that. So for example, like BidDocs, when we post documents online, it was interesting because everybody at first said, well, how are we going to get our hard copies? 
And so when we started, we had probably a 90% orders on hard copies, okay? Over the years, we're probably down to about 20% of people actually requesting hard copies anymore. Because what they're finding is they can download electronic uh, copies, you know, PDFs typically, and then with these new apps and stuff that can do like takeoffs and things like that, it becomes a much more productive tool than to just say, oh, we still have to issue hard copies. But if you go on our website, you will still be able to order hard copies because there are some people out there that think that's the way it is. That may soon go away very quickly, you know, just because the demand has changed. And stuff. So I guess what I'm saying in a roundabout way is find out what technologies are there and then also sit down and figure out what are you really trying to achieve? And then do you actually have to do the uh, action that's always occurred? And I'll give you one last example because this has become the most immediate for us is BidDocs now automates the requisition process, okay? So the contractor goes and puts his schedule of values on, you know, everybody approves it, reviews it and approves it, and then they sign off online. And one of the owners asked me, well, where do we put the, uh, the notary for the requisition? And I said, what is the purpose of that? Well, it's always been there. I said, but think about it. The contractor is submitting the requisition. Is he going to submit a requisition that isn't truthful? And he probably has the notary on staff that's going to notarize it anyway. So what is the purpose of the notary? Well, we've never thought of it that way. And I said, exactly. So why do we need a notary on a requisition when at the end of the day, you're the one, you the owner, has final say on whether that requisition gets paid. So the designer signs it, the contractor signs it, your representative signs it, then you send it off to uh, purchasing, and then you make the final decision whether you're gonna pay that requisition. It doesn't matter if a notary stamp is on there or not. So that's an example of reevaluating what processes have been in place in the past and say, do we still need to do it that way? Right, and it's, it's driving streamlining and, and innovation, but I, I wanna get back to when when um, BidDocs Online started, the early generation, you were just trying to solve the addendum problem. Addenda problem. What, what, what tools were at your available? I mean, what, if this was the catalyst for this program you have now, this product, and, and I want to get into the details. You shared a little bit about the details of BidDoc, BidDocs Online, what that looks like. But in the genesis, I mean, how did you automate that process or solve the problem then that then catalyzed, you know, was a catalyst to moving forward and saying, we should do more of this in, in different phases of the project. So, um, well, it's that old saying, um, you know, uh, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So we lost all that time. So the question was, what would be a quicker way to automate this? So in this case, you know, the bottom line is everybody had to have an addenda, you know, and post it. And by law here in Massachusetts, you had to eat hard copies and send out hard copies. So we met with the AG's office and everybody said, what happens if this is posted online and we notify everybody via email? And she goes, that would be the equivalent to the notification. And I said, great. So, um, you know, we just made sure that when you registered as a plan holder on our site, that you got the notifications that an addenda was posted. You click on the link and you'd see the addenda, okay? met the same intentions of being able to um, get in the addendum, but we didn't have to send out hard copies of it. I mean, I, I, that's the, the simplest way of answering what we did. I mean, it's, it's just, it sounds dumb and simple, but that again, that's all we needed to do. We just had to get the information to the bidders. And so, the but, quickest but, way was to just send it out email and 
have them click a link. But the but the but the 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 strategic and the innovative thinking is what's the intent? This is a lot of work. This is a lot of work that's not necessarily highest and best use of our uh, of our time and our clients' money. What is the intent, and how do I come up with a better way to do this? And so I think that's I mean that's something right there. You know, it seems like a problem. Who do I need to get the answer to to start doing something different? This might go into the AG's office and then just starting it. And so where did you put it? Did you put it up on your server? Like this is where, let, let's just put it there and give them a link. I mean, I'm just thinking like logistically, oh, no, how no, did okay. that work so, back in the day? So yeah, well, no, we didn't. We actually formed a, a company called Bid Docs Online. Okay. And we created its own website and its own domain and everything because we had multiple clients that needed this service. So we couldn't just put it up on HKA's you know, website or anything like that. So that's why we created this kind of platform that said, let everybody use it. And so for like the first year or two, our company was the only one that was using the platform. But word got around, our consultants saw it, other designers saw and said, hey, this is great. Maybe we can use it too. And then we slowly let more and more people onto it. And then we started to get owners and stuff on it. Now, one of the funny things that the, you know, when I was telling you about necessity is the mother of invention. So we'd been hosting these projects online now. So we'd have the drawings in certain, um, and they're not really folders, they're actually tabs on the website. We had specs and things like that. And I remember one of our clients was moving and they had all these, um, what we call legacy archives, all the old blueprints and everything. And they go, we can't take these with us. I said, no problem, we'll archive them for you. So I come back to the office and I said, did you know I just got a contract for archiving? They go, but we don't have an archiving platform. I said, we do now. I said, so why don't we take our bidding platform, structure the documents in the same way for the archives, put a few little you know, bells and whistles on it, and now we have an archive. So within coming back to the office and about two weeks later, we had repurposed technology that we had used to create archives. And everybody started archiving with us. You know, and so, again, I, I don't know if I'm really answering your question. It's just one of those, there's a need out there. I try to repurpose technologies and stuff, use them in new innovative ways. And so we basically took a hosting platform, converted it into an archive platform, and now we archive millions and millions of documents for our clients. And they love it. They're saving money. And as one of the owners said, they're saving, you're saving us a lot of real estate. <laughs> and, and when when <clears throat> when did you develop the platform um, bid docs online? When, when when what year was that? That was two thousand and six, August okay. two thousand and six. So you have this platform, or and you mentioned that you know more than just your clients, but you originally were using your clients and then started expanding that out. So was this just a a piece of your architecture firm that just like an added service that you have this server that you're doing? I mean, when did you? <clears throat> Did you always set this up as a, you got this idea as a practitioner and Helen Carl architects, and then you just said, you know, let, let's do a separation. Let's start something different and we'll do bid docs online. Or were you just sort of separating it out within your practice? And then at some point you created another company to do this. Yeah. So, um, so we looked at bid docs as simply as a tool. It was no different than AutoCAD or anything else than like that. Um, because if you actually go to our website today, we have no website for Helen Carl Architects. All right, believe it or not, you know, in this day of age. Um, but the, so we needed a place to, you know, reside, this tool had to reside. 
And so that's why we created Bid Docs Online, okay? And um, yes, as you articulated correctly, first year or two was just simply our tool that people started to say, could we get involved and adopt in it? And it was probably about three or four years after that, that we said, maybe this could be a really serious business. And that's where we started to bring on some developers and, you know, people to help us, you know, expand the business. But it was probably a three or four year, you know, window before we actually started doing um, more services for everybody. Um, and again, as time changed, um, one of the things we did is we used to host a lot of projects for DHCD around here. That's the Department of Community Housing and Development. And DHCD has a $100 million bond cap, and they do about um, anywhere from 800 to 1,300 projects a year when they went to what they call formula funding. That's when we did our next innovation because we were handling most of DHCD's projects at the time, which were a couple hundred a year. Then all of a sudden they were saying that they might push it to 800 or 1,000. I said, we don't have the capacity to do that. So we invented, you know, under the design thing is what we call smart spec. And smart spec was the ability that, um, think of it as TurboTax for construction procurement. Um, you answer 20 questions, automatically puts the front end together. You browse and attach your technical steps. It, you know, counts the pages, puts the table of contents together, stamps the headers and footers on all the uh, document. Same thing with the list of drawings. And then it validates that all the information is, that's needed to go out to bid is there. So that was just by sheer dumb luck that you know, we ran into that one. And the, the funny part is that the guy at the time there was Dana. He used to be marketing with me. So we started working with DHEE to, um, to automate this process for them. And um, I had been working with them for like 20 years. So there was no reason to believe that the contract wasn't coming and everything. And they kept saying the contract's coming and the contract's coming. About you know, a couple months into the project and about $100,000 later, they said they're not signing the contract. And most people would, you know, Dana comes to me and says, great, what are we gonna do? You know, this is a crisis. And I said, well, it turned out it was the best thing that ever happened to us. Because when we were working with DHD, they wanted 32 roles that were very customized to their particular process because they weren't thinking of an innovative way. And since they were supposedly going to pay the ticket, we said we have to build what they want. 32 it, roles? What was? 32 roles because they had like um, supervisors and project okay. managers. And roles of people who would interface yeah, with this. Interface with wow. this. Thing. And they had 32 of them. Well, when it was on their dime, it was easy to build that because they were going to pay for that. When it became my dime in building on it, we said, whoa, you know, we have a little bit of a problem. So we stripped it down to about four basic roles. Okay. Well, that was the best thing that ever happened because now all the universities and everything could start using us because it wasn't so customized to DHDD's um, particular requirement. So we like to look at it as we provide a framework in which some customization can occur, okay? So like on front ends, we create templates for the individual clients that have it. So the universities all have different templates and stuff, but the same process is basically worked. And if you think about our industry, we've been doing the same thing um, day in and day out for decades, if not centuries, um, on how we process projects and stuff. And the only thing that's customized in it is really the product that we produce, whether it be the individual building or the renovation or anything, but the process is the same. We design it, we bid it or negotiate it, we build it and we archive it. 
And there's certain steps we go through. Sometimes we go through multiple steps. Sometimes we go just through a few of the steps. For example, like during the design phase, uh, if it's an interior renovation step, you probably can just do it as of right and you design it. If it's a new building, you probably have to go through zoning and conservation and everything else. But it's the same steps. It's just how many steps of that particular process do you have to go through? So BidDocs is basically the framework in which you can start to customize things to accommodate, but we don't let you veer off of the, uh, the framework. As we like to say, we put guardrails up and we guide all participants to compliance. Um, so now, so the, there's an, the, right now we're talking about a design process framework, but this is part of a, a larger project framework, which you've done now. But I just want to recap the evolution the way I understand it. Sure. <clears throat> there's a bidding process and you've come up with a problem and you figured a way to automate it through <clears throat> addenda. And then you created a solution with an online platform, you've tested it, you've optimized it, and then you've expanded it to include your clients and others over time. And then there's a client that comes to you and says, I have this design issue too. Like I, I, I wanna be able to specify hundreds of projects at once. And you see that as a scale opportunity. So you've, you expand the bidding platform to cover design and then come up with a way to standardize specs for a particular client that's asking you to scale in a massive way, which causes innovation, which causes you to think online platform, scalability, repeatability. And then they kind of pull the rug out from under you as you get $100,000 into this. And so at that point, you seem to say, okay, well, this is still something of value because of what you just mentioned as far as the, we customize products, but we're not necessarily customizing the process. Correct. Um, how do I do this? I'm going to slim this down to be four roles, not 32. And I'm going to offer this now to clients. Did I summarize that? Right? You got it exactly. That is correct. Yes. Okay. So now you, you've moved from bidding to design and you have this standardized framework for design. Well, let me sort of clarify. So, how do you, okay, clarify and then how did you move forward from that? Because I think yeah, this so, is just fascinating from an evolution perspective. Yeah, so, so we originally started out, it's so most people would say that the process is linear. Planning, design, bidding, construction, archiving. Okay, it, let's just assume for discussion's sake that that's a linear process. All right. So, well, the first thing we did was start in what we call the hosting phase. That was the day one when we you know, started the uh, company and the technology. It was simply to get projects online so that contractors could go and get the documents without having to order hard copies. That's all we did. Okay. Um, and we you know, chugged along with that for a while. Then in 2012, um, we were having other problems with the company in the sense not, you know, issues per se with the company, but we were spending a lot of time, for example, going to bid openings. Now, if you're familiar with Massachusetts, we have a thing called filed sub-bids. So Mike and I in the office went down to Fall River Housing Authority and we opened a bid and we spent eight hours there reading bids because we had about 150 bids that we had to read for the various trades, okay? And you would have to read them out loud in public. So we sat there for, you know, close to two hours opening envelopes reading no, such and such bids, they have a bid bond, they've acknowledged addendas one, two, and three, they have a certificate of update, they have a certificate of eligibility. And we went, and somebody would manually write this down on a tabulation. 
I, I, I am go, having flashbacks. I so remember exactly doing that. And it doesn't sound like so long ago, but carry on. Yes. Yeah, so, so then after we read all the bids, 150 bids out loud, Mike and I sat there with the owner for another probably hour or two going through all the documents again to make sure that somebody hadn't transposed something wrong on the tabulation. Then we bring the tabulation back to the office and then somebody typed up the tabulation. Then we had to stuff these in the envelopes and mail all the you know, bid results to all the uh, bidders and stuff, whether they were a filed sub-bidder or whether they were the general bidder. Now, this may sound very archaic you know, to people that aren't familiar with Massachusetts public bid laws, but that's just the way life was. So the fact that it took us an hour, I mean, eight hours to just process one bid opening, okay, with that was fraught with error i mean that's why we had to double check and check and and even when we did the tabulation and you know we thought we got all the bids right we had to issue another addendum because we transposed one of the numbers on the bid thing so that's what i said why don't we do electronic bidding that ought to be a novel thing so um we were the first company to introduce electronic bidding here in the commonwealth of massachusetts and this was in 2012. now knowing the sensitivity of this we again met with the AGO's office and we presented our thing and we explained to them what we were doing and how we were going to comply with all the bid laws and everything. And they participated in it. And they were one of the first participants on it. They said, put us into the system so that we can monitor it. Well, needless to say, the very first electronic bid that went out was, pro was, was protested because it had never been done before. So we're sitting here and we have everybody sitting around the AG's office. Everybody's excited about this because it had never come across it yet. And it was just by sheer dumb luck, one of the developers we had, you know, Greg, we should audit the process and keep a log of this. And I said, sure, how long is it going? He said, it'll take me a day or two, but I can build this audit. Well, thank God he did because when the um, bidders were there, they said, our bid was never accepted and stuff. So he pulled the audit logs and said, because you never submitted the bid, you only did the first step, but you never hit the submit bid, you had just filled out the bid form. Well, that became the precedence in Massachusetts now for how they determine whether electronic bidding is valid or not. They go off the, the logs. It's a little small thing that we had participated in, and, but it was just very kind of interesting how, again, partly from sheer dumb luck, partly because of necessity and stuff, that we created a bidding platform just to address this initial thing of spending eight hours opening bids for that one project. But again, it's solving problems that you as a practitioner know the depth of, 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 of what it takes to serve and, and, and to do what's necessary. And so you're on the ground floor to be able to solve the problem and come up with ways. And I just, I, I think it's, it's really neat. I mean, you develop the team. It's, it's just, it's developers that can just bring in like, well, we do audit maybe in industry X and industry Y. So why wouldn't you do it here? And so you surrounding yourself with people knowing who to connect, like who is the ultimate authority. So to me, it's, it's really a practitioner understanding there's got to be a way to do this. And then just kind of walking through the system strategically and since, um, and um, systematically to come up with the solution. So, I mean, what, fast forward to today. So, you know, the, the, the hosting, the bidding, the design, I mean, what does BidDocs Online look like today? What services are you providing? So um, we are doing a remake on um, all of our services, integrating them out, because this was, you know, cobbled together over um, 
like a 10 year period, 12 year period. What, what are all those services? What, okay, what those? so right now we have the planning phase. And in planning, basically what we have is what we call our e-library, okay? This gives owners opportunities to put all their standards and their forms and everything online in a single repository. Because having worked with many universities, worked with many you know, utility companies and everything, they say, we'll use our um, Caldata standards. And I go, well, what version are we on? And one project manager gives me the 2012 version. One gives me the 2018 version. The IT gives me the two. And I say, which one is applicable? Okay. It is amazing that these organizations, because they have so many dispersed, you know, individuals and groups and stuff, they're all using different standards. So we're saying we could build e-library that you can now put all your standards so that there's the single repository that becomes the master. Sounds basic, sounds stupid, but I'm telling you, it is a challenge. Okay. You just saved a ton of time and rework and frustration just in that comment right there. Just so, there. But carry on. Okay. Um, then, um, then we did design. Now, what I always say to the, about the design process is owners outsource 98% of the construction procurement process, but have 100% of the risk with few commercially available tools to manage the process. And people, the owners always say, what do you mean we outsource 98% of the process? What do we do for the 2%? I said, pay the bills. And they go, well, no, we get in. I said, do you actually design? Very few owners have designers on staff anymore. Very few owners have contractors on staff. So I said, you outsource 98% of it, but you have all the risk. And I, what do I say? Risk originates with flawed documents and errors in the process that can lead to cost overruns, schedule delays, and potential claims and litigation. So I said to these, you know, and this is how we got into the design phase of it. I said to the owners, what if we had a standardized template? Because once again, I would go to the universities and depending on which project manager I work with would determine which front end I got from the owner. Or they'd tell me to make up my own and this, that, and the other. And again, I'm kind of rolling a lot of things together. So hopefully, you know, the, your um, listeners can keep up with this concept. But it's like, for example, when we work for towns and cities, they would say, we'll use the AIA documents. I said, do you know what the AIA documents protect? Think about it. It's the American Institute of Architect. Who do you, well, it protects the owner. Who's protected before that? They go, the architect? I said, shocking, isn't it? Because it's the AIA documents. I said, so who is watching out for the town's interest? And then of course, these town attorneys would take the 30 page AIA documents and put 64 pages of amendments to it. I said, is it the AIA document anymore? Okay, and then how does the AIA document deal with filed subbids and everything? So I said, wouldn't it be better to come up with a tried and tested front end for Massachusetts public bid laws or whoever and put that together? And then you know that it's a consistent um, you know, document that all of your project managers and all your projects use. So I said, bring in facilities, bring in purchasing and bring in legal and let's sit down and put these templates together. And one of the universities said, yeah, but it's too tight. We should loosen it up. And I said, look, before you loosen up the template and which can be, what can be changed and can't be, I said, run it for six months. So we ran it for six months and I sat down with the director of facilities and I said, Gene, Last time we met six months ago, you said you wanted me to loosen it up a little more. She goes, not anymore, Greg. She goes, crank it down tighter. I want this question off. I want this. Do not let them change it because they're creating problems. 
So now what's happening is it's become very easy for a lot of our clients that they just answer the 20 questions in the front end is together. I sell it to designers and the designers say, you know, but that's not our standard front end. I go, why would you want to take that on? I said, did you go to law school? And they go, no. I said, so you went to architecture or engineering school, do the technical stuff. Now you're only responsible for the technical portion of the project. And if the front end blows up, that's on the owner. And they go, we never thought of it that way. So now everybody's benefiting from it because now you have the owners getting what they want for their front ends through this template in what we call smart spec. The designers are doing what they've been educated for, doing all the technical thing. And it seems to be a win-win because um, one of our clients, and I hate to you know, mention any names, so I won't, but um, they wanted me to do some updates on the template and I was running a little behind schedule. So they called me up and said, we're stopping all smart spec projects until the templates are updated. So we started updating and we were running a little behind. Then the owner calls me and says, and begs me, please update the templates. And I said, we're working on it. They go, no, you don't understand, Greg. 32 of our house doctors refuse to do any work until the templates are back online. So you have brought you know, this work to a halt because they've become so accustomed to using your front ends and everything and making it streamlined that they've stopped work. You know, so I, I don't know what that says, but the point being, it became a helpful tool for everybody that the designers are appreciating the, because again, now everybody's focusing on their high value that they bring to a project, not just all this administrative stuff. So, so that, that so just a little, just to drill down and, and then um, on that, just to, I guess, put a, put a pin in that. So the front end documents, <clears throat> it said it so for a particular client, and this is very client centric, owner centric set yeah. of documents initially. That's at least how you started. You answer these 20 questions and it basically builds that administrative legal front end. Correct. And, and then so, and that's automatically populated and it's customized enough by the way you answer these questions. And now we're moving on to the technical part. Correct. correct. So if, for example, like one of the questions is what is the performance period? So you type in a number 180, and it's 180 calendar days that gets put right into the documents. The other thing too is because as you know, many of the documents have repetitive information, like the project name might appear multiple times or the awarding authority and stuff. Well, the old fashioned way where you would used to type it in, in a Word document and then PDF and compile and stuff, you could make some mistakes. Where in our case, all the, um, relevant information is tagged. So the owner can go in and change the project name in one place and it automatically updates the documents everywhere. It's that simple. For example, headers and footers. Now, again, working for a lot of universities, it'll come as a surprise, and I know many of your listeners probably do the same thing, is if you have a particular spec for, you know, say fire stopping or concrete, and you use it from one university to the next university, and suppose that you change the headers and footers. Well, Sometimes, you know, if you're working for Harvard University and then you do a project for Tufts University and you forget to change the header on that, it looks kind of embarrassing as a designer that you miss that, but we're all human, we missed up. But more important, it also leads to some uh, legal challenges because in one case, uh, the header was different on one of the specs and this was a public project and the contractor says, I don't own the concrete. And we said, it's right here in the specs. And they go, no, if you read it, it's a different owner. I don't own that concrete. That was part of a different spec. So by us just applying the headers and footers on the documents, we don't wipe out anything. We just 
put a transparent overlay on it. At least now we don't have this problem because the project documents are all stamped identical. So you avoid this issue of, well, this is or isn't. And yes, you might be able to read some other client's name underneath it and stuff, but basically at least you have a more accurate document. So that's what we, when we talk about templates, we put the templates together for the front end or the division zero and division one sections of it. And we also make sure that they're coordinated because again, you'll see um, in the general conditions, something like submittals, there's a whole process for it. And then you'll get into division one and the uh, designer will typically write another submittal process that may not reconcile with the, the uh, general conditions. And so now you have ambiguities. And as I said, you know, risk originates with flawed documents and errors in the process. So the front end is telling you, I mean, the general conditions, it's telling you one way of processing submittals. The division one section is telling you a different way. Which one do you comply with? Right. And this, this is really standardizing the process that is time consuming and, as you mentioned, fraught with errors. So, all right, planning and design. And does the system also move into, did you adapt it to construction and post-construction? Yeah. So what happens is after you're done with design, you have a button that says send to, design, send to bid. And you push the button. The system automatically validates that all the key information is there. For example, like it would be nice to have bid dates in your documents if you're going to go out to bid. You know, so anyways, we can validate whatever questions you want um, to put in there and the system will validate it. It will not let you go into bidding unless the information is answered. Of course, owners love this now because if they're running different projects and stuff, they don't have to worry. The bids are taken online, system automatically tabulates and everything. And um, at the end of uh, April, early May, the owners will now be able to push a button and generate the contract automatically because we're pulling them from the bid documents, we have the bid results, they generate the contract, everybody processes the contract online. Then they push another thing that says, you know, once the contract is signed, send to construction. Our construction module has been up and running since uh, May of uh, last year. And uh, it's been incredibly well received because one of the first things we introduced was the um, requisition process. Well, as I like to describe the requisition is when I typically review a requisition, the first one, after you get through the schedule of values, the first one is fine because they usually bill it for the bonds and the insurance and stuff. Second one usually is still okay to do. By the third requisition, I usually say it's off the rails. Why? Because some uh, change order work has been done, but an official change order hasn't been issued. It's really just been a proposed change order. So then the owners can't do it. And then there's math errors and everything else. So I said to everybody, so what used to take, you know, maybe um, an hour or two to review a requisition. Now I can review it basically in minutes because what I do is I just go through the line items, I click on the line items and I write my comment right there in line and say, you know, reduce from 50% for the concrete to 40% for the concrete. You can do it as the uh, owner, I can do it as a designer, whoever needs to be reviewing that requisition and we call them signatories on the requisition. Contractor pushes a button, he uh, can now print all the comments in one easy uh, display. He goes in and makes the adjustments. He picks up the phone calls if he doesn't like the adjustment stuff, and we all agree. So right now, what used to take anywhere from a week to a week and a half to process the requisition, we can now do in 24 to 48 hours. And I'm not kidding you. It is literally moving that fast because we all see the same thing at the same time. The contractor makes the changes. We all click, you know, sign off on it processes all the numbers and stuff. Now, does the same thing with PCOs. 
contractor does a proposed change order. We all accept it and it sits in a bucket. The owner then says, create a change order. So I go PCOs one, three, five, and eight. I go click, everybody signs off of it. Once that change order is signed off by everybody, it automatically moves on to the requisition. So there's no more tracking or missing paperwork and things aren't getting kicked back or anything like that. And, and I, assume, I assume this also works with RFIs. It works with RFIs. And then and you the run shop drawings and, and all that into to all, all of these areas that are necessary, but it can be ex, you know, administratively burdensome are all streamlined through. And so basically with this system, you, because of your depth of understanding as a practitioner and knowing where we can, we, we, where the issues are and how to optimize it, you've developed this system. And so just, I mean, who, where, where are you now as far as adoption and um, as far as bringing this product and extending, scaling this product in the market? Well, so right now, um, again, as I said, we're finishing the remake of the system and, you know, refactoring, getting rid of some of our technical debt. That's what they use in the term of the computer industries and everything. Um, so we're, we're in full production. All the services are readily available. So you can bid with us, you can design with us, you can use our construction model, you can use our archiving and stuff. Um, we are putting more and more enhancements in there. For example, we're doing a, uh, the equivalent to a daily report function in there so that the uh, clerk can just do his reports online. Uh, one of the things I did want to say, Peter, about the uh, construction, and this again, one of the things the owners love and everything, we actually have a, the closeout component on it. So all the warranties, all the record shop drawings, all the submittal, all the ads builds, all the CADs and stuff can be loaded up into a single place in the repository. And the owner goes, check, check, check. I'm happy with everything, pushes a button, and it automatically compiles all this information that can either go be sent to their archive or you can download it for your records. Um, again, it's one of those things, it's just painful to close out a project. I think we've all been on those where it takes months, if not in some cases, years to just close out where now everybody knows, because again, you're only doing the high value things. For example, if you're responsible for preparing the uh, record drawings, you only have to upload the record drawings and you're not trying to track down which submittal was approved. You know where all the warranties are, you know where the sign permit, because they're all in the system just waiting to be you know, memorialized. So, um, so anyways, so, so to answer your question, we're in full production on everything. We are slowly integrating all the systems so that they, and that again should be done probably by, you know, you know, late summer, we'll have everything fully updated and fully integrated with all the new enhancements and everything. Contractors are now signing up for subscriptions to our a system to, um, to use some of the, just the, the requisition and the submittal and the RFI processes and stuff. Uh, owners are a big um, user of ours because for example, we're now doing, we hit like at state levels. So like DHCD, Department of Community Housing and Development, which is the funding authority for the 242 housing authorities uses our system. Because again, they've standardized things now. They use us for their archiving and all the individual housing authorities can still use the same services. We're now talking to one of the university systems here that is talking about centralizing all of their uh, procurement for construction at all the campuses. And there, you know, we're in process of working with that. So again, we're in full production. Anybody that would like to use our services, they can use any portion of the services that they want. What we usually find is because it's one integrated platform, they typically would like to go, you know, and keep with the one integrated platform, you know. But again, that's up to the individuals, you know, as far as that goes.
So it's, it's pretty big and getting bigger and it could be the soup to nuts, but it also can be a contractor coming in and just using from the, you know, the post bidding phase all the way through closeout. Correct. So, Correct. Um, I mean, so, I mean, looking at, so just one, one question, I, I want to talk about how, you know, sort of your lessons learned and, and, you know, cause people are moving into this productizing space. Um, but what role does your practice have? you know, Helen Carl architects, I mean, because you're still a practitioner. So, I mean, you sound like a software tech, you, you know, in, in the software industry, the tech industry, but you're really a practitioner too. I mean, what is the interface between your practice and, and this product in, the, in, so we, in your online tech investors world? And we've had people, so a lot of times the developers will tell me, oh, you got to give up Helen Carl architects. Okay. And we have a great core of investors now that say, absolutely not. Because Helen Carl Architects is what we call the R&D branch of Bid Docs now, okay? Anything we launch, we launch in a friendly environment because obviously it's our firm. We have the relationships with the owners and stuff and we get good, positive, immediate feedback. More important is that when we actually do this um, and we launch something, if there's a little bug or a glitch or something's difficult to do, I can pick up the phone and call my developer and say, fix it tonight not next week, so that we have live tests, because you can put a, you know, bring something to a grinding halt if it's not working properly, you know. So we like to look at Helen Carl Architects and Bid Dogs have the, you know, they're interrelated in the sense that there's two separate corporations. They have their own business clients and everything. Some of the clients overlap just because of the relationship. But Helen Carl Architects is literally the R&D branch which I don't think there's many other companies that are in this field that are doing this. And so you look at something like um, Autodesk, very successful, great company, makes a great product and everything. What would happen if they actually had an architectural or an engineering firm working? I bet you they'd get more bugs out of the system because we've all worked with AutoCAD and stuff and there's some glitches and there's things that people just don't normally do. That's because the developers have great ideas and they know what the technology can do they don't understand that that's not how we work in the real world you know right. um, and, and that's the benefit of again being a practitioner understanding a problem at depth and then working through solving that that issue i mean what so i mean there is a move to you know not sell time for money and even move into lump sums and you know tr trying to trying to move from a business perspective an architecture engineer um, <clears throat> business perspective from. I don't want to sell time for money. I want to sell value. And then the next step is really productizing your services and so on. And in your case, it's a software system. What, what advice, I mean, after being at this 10 years um, and being your level of success, I mean, what advice do you have for um, someone who has an idea of productizing? Um, what would you say to them as they say, I have an idea to productize a piece of my business to solve a problem? Well, so first and foremost, um, I would say don't build unless you've already sold it. And I mean that literally. So in the case of like the archiving component, I think I mentioned to you was a spinoff from our hosting. Okay. We did not have an archiving service to provide. I just knew that we could accommodate that. So we signed our first contract before we even had the product. Because at the end of the day, you need to be able to sell your product or your services. So I would definitely encourage you to say, find somebody that's willing to purchase this for you. I mean, we all fall in love and I'm guilty of it too, of certain technologies and we like to do this and it makes it. And if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But I'm saying, see if there's mass appeal 
and whether people are really having this product problem and what are they willing to pay for it? Because with the internet, everybody thinks everything should be free. Maybe it can be free, but you, you got to figure out a way to pay the bills to keep the servers online and stuff. So it can't all be free. Certain services may be free, but other services can't. So I'd say first and foremost, find if there's actually a market and whether somebody's willing to pay for it. Um, once you've figured that out, make sure you define the problem in a very, very narrow um, perspective. You can't be everything to everyone. So we have owners, again, and I use the DHED example, that wanted me to have 32 roles. And I told them, no, you get your four basic roles, and we're actually up to about 12 roles now, now that we have the whole build out of the thing. But the point simply being is we keep it very narrow and focused, and we stay in our lane. Because a lot of these universities go, oh, you guys do such a great job of archiving. Could you archive our records for the students? And I said, no, we don't do that. We know nothing about archiving records for students. They ask us, oh, can you do this accounting program for us? No, I can give you the information from your requisitions, but we stay in the construction lane because that is our expertise. So don't be afraid to say no and stay in your lane. Because I think the biggest problem is people promise too much and if it goes wrong, then all of a sudden you get the black eye and nobody wants to use your service because you're trying to be everything to everybody. Um, persistence, I would say you're gonna to have to persist. If you do decide to go into the tech world, there's a lot of similarities with the design worlds and there's a lot of differences. Um, you know, you always hear about the prima donna architects and engineers. Well, trust me, the developers in the tech world are just as much, if not more prima donnas than us. So. Uh, for all those architects and stuff that I've called prima donnas before, I have found ones that make you look like amateurs. Okay, it's just a different world. <laughs> um, where we are, um, I, I always hear in the construction industry, it's a collaborative process. No, it's not. It's a contractual process. I have a contract as a designer with the owner. The owner has a contract with the contractor. We all have contractual obligations. The tech world definitely thinks more in the collaborative approach, okay? And um, as a result, they build things as teams, as similar to design teams and stuff, but they don't have, they don't seem to have the urgency of deadlines like we do. And if you build a bug in it, it's not a big deal, you just change it. Well, let's imagine that we design a building and the uh, structure is undersized and it starts to fail, okay? First, somebody could actually get killed. But two, if not, you could be spending a lot of money to fix that design problem, okay? Developers don't seem to care as much about that with a bug. So it's a bug, what's the big deal? So the requisitions didn't tally right for the day. You know, just tell the owner to just do it by hand or something. There seems to be a slightly different mentality. And again, love my developers, they're great guys and everything. But I think you need to be patient and understand that there's a different time frame and a different approach in which they look at things because they don't have the same liabilities that we do. Mm, that's that's why I mean, that's interesting. I mean, so, I mean, you hear in the tech world and, you know, uh, minimum viable product, but in our space, because we're contractual, we need viable products. So it's not, it's, I mean, there, there's a, how we define minimum is very different. And then as far as the time and, and the working out bugs, I guess the working out bugs, the fact that you have, an R&D lab with clients that you're working out the bugs with immediately, it, it makes the, your, your minimum viable product is a higher level minimum before it's sort of rolled out through uh, bid docs online. And the other piece with the time, it's not like, 
I mean, my, my industry, correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, and a, a lot of firms in the industry that I know that are working on uh, productizing, they're not seeking outside angel investors. They're their own angel investors and it's cash flow. So you, you, we really just tell, oh, we made that mistake. We're going to go just do it over again. You, you kind of want to work through um, the process systematically um, and, and check things because th there's not the endless supply of money. Yeah, absolutely. But again, I think it goes back to the well-defined and what is a minimal viable product. So I explained to like when we were doing the construction module, they go, oh, we'll build the requisition. I said, nope. In addition to that, you need to build the PCOs and you need to build the change orders. Well, why? Because those are integral into, because if I have a change order, how do I get it onto the requisition? Well, we'll do that later. No, and that's not the way our world works. I need to get the change order on today. When we did the uh, substantial uh, partial release of retainage and the final release of retainage and stuff, I go, those are integral in the process. They're not like, oh, we can do them three weeks from now or introduce them a year from now. I said, those are integral. So again, I think it's, you need to be focused. You need to stay um, in your lane of what you really need to do and think the whole process through because it's not just doing one component of it and launching it. You have to actually launch it as in a, a whole series of things. So, um, so I always say that that's important. And then, um, was another thing, keep talking to me, Peter. I know I was going to tell you another thing about this whole process and stuff, um, but just kind of slipped my mind for the moment. Yeah, I mean, well, there's just, well, I guess, the, I mean, my takeaway is, well, first of all, I mean, you've been at this well over a decade, you know, I mean, obviously multiple decades as far as practitioner, but, but optimizing and solving issues and, and productizing that service, there's a lot to it. I think, you know, the conversation has brought the depth <clears throat> and, you know, what it takes to sort of move through something that people are talking more and more about productizing. Um, and so I think this has been extremely helpful um, for people who are thinking through that. I mean, especially in this space, because I think I, I like what you said, as far as it's a contractual process, not necessarily collaborative. It's collaborative to a point, but we need to deliver something. Um, and, and so, I mean, we can, I, I, I'm excited for even more discussions about this, but, you know, here, I mean, we've touched on so much. I mean, is there anything else that you would, you would like to add to the conversation just to talk about your experience in, in productizing a service um, oh, that we haven't already touched on? Yeah, so two other just quick things. First of all, don't be afraid to cannibalize your own product. I, what do you I mean by that? I, well, you know, let's look at Apple. We use Apple as a great model, okay? Apple came out with the iPod, if you remember. Those of us that are, you know, old enough to remember the iPod, okay? And as I always said about Apple, Apple did not build the iPod to do, um, you know, to sell that device. They built it to uh, build a music store. The, uh, you know, what is it, the iTunes store and stuff. And so everybody, all the competitors were running out, replicating these uh, devices that work like the iPod, uh, what is it, three PGs or whatever they were called. I'm sorry, I'm not good with the acronym on that. Okay. But I, Apple always knew it was going to cannibalize the iPod with the, the iPhone. They had every intentions and they thought in the future about that. So I say, don't be afraid to build the platform to get you to the next step in the more global things. Um, and so we're doing that in the sense that everything that we are introducing is helping us gather data. But we are now being able to analyze that data and provide extra value to our clients so that 
you know, we're getting to the point that we are going to be able to predict what bids are going to come in and who's going to get the bid because of the database that we have. Well, needless to say, that's incredibly valuable to an owner because if they're budgeting a million dollars for this project, and if we can run the analytics and say, you better budget two million, you know, that could have a real impact on the schedule and everything. And that's the data that we don't have in the industry yet, but I do believe that that's going to be possible. So again, um, I would say, don't be afraid to cannibalize your um, uh, products as you're building towards the, the future. Because what's in today could be out tomorrow. Which brings me to the next thing is, if you are not hungry every day, and if you are not fearful that somebody's gonna knock you off your perch, then do not get into product, especially do not get into the tech world. There is not a day that I don't get up saying, who's gonna take me and put me out of business today? Because tech moves at a much, much faster pace than the construction industry. Because it's always interesting, my uh, developers say, well, how soon do you know? It's three nanoseconds for it. I go, hey, three minutes would work for us because it cuts me from three hours to three minutes. So you give me three nanoseconds, I'll be thrilled. But hey, if it takes three seconds, I'm okay. Because literally we do trade-offs like that every day because sometimes compiling a whole set of specs or something, it could take us three seconds to compile it. Now to my developers, that is unheard of. Like why would you let the system spin for three seconds while it's compiling a, you know, a 300 page drawings and you know, 3,000 pages of specs. I go, because you've taken three days of work off my table. And that's why if I can do it in three seconds, I'm happy. I don't need three nanoseconds. But the industry really does move in nanoseconds. So again, what I saw happen, you know, when we started hosting, there was probably like one or two companies that were hosting, probably within five years, there were dozens and dozens. And so you better figure out what distinguishes. And I would say this to the designers too, because we try to do this as well as at Helen Carl Arctics is we're all great designers. We're all competent. I mean, everybody will tell you that you go to the interviews and stuff, but what are you really bringing to the client that's new and innovative and that provides them value? And in our case, we believe like BidDocs is an incredible tool because we are now getting jobs and stuff, not only because you know, we like to believe we're competent and we do a great job, but we're also streamlining the operations and stuff. And so they're always keeping us around to do projects and stuff because they also know we'll support them on bid doc. So we're not their only designers, but we are streamlining them. So that's what distinguishes us and we bring different things. So I'd say to anybody that's thinking of developing a product, how is this going to enhance somebody's experience that they're willing to pay for it and it makes you more valuable now as opposed to, because again, we all know, Peter, there's a lot of good firms out there with a lot of competent people and talent and stuff, but they're just doing it the same old way and you're just in the clutter of everything with everybody else. I mean, is that a fair assessment? Or, I mean, you've run the firm, the firm before and stuff. You're competing every day. Right, and in this case, you're taking a product that can help anybody, but it also helps you and your business. But I mean, I liked what you said about, you know, cannibalizing the product because it's really cannibalizing how you think and work today because how we th think and work tomorrow might be differently. But on that sense, I mean, you're thinking and the thinking that went into um, BitDocs Online is really, it's the ultimate problem, the ultimate objective of owners and practitioners in that space. And so, yeah, there's something today I can work on and it enhances it. But if you keep an eye on the ultimate issue, um, 
the two the true global objectives you can start solving the problem and using the different tools so it really is especially in our day you know busy and consumed and worried about like you know, today's competition I guess, I mean, it almost sounds like working into this tech space, it, it's forcing you to always think more globally, which then you zone down on the details. You, you're actually solving today, you know, problems today better for clients by always being able to zoom out big picture, which is an issue just in, pra in practice today that we just don't have that time or that the, the opportunity to just think too much big picture, even though that's ultimately where the innovation happens. Right, but even let's just look at today. Literally today, what is happening? We have the coronavirus. Okay, most of the schools are being shut down. Restaurants are being shut down. Everything's being shut down. We have to keep our social distance. All right, um, we're not missing a beat. And my employees can work at home. My contractors can work at home. Owners can work at home. Why? Because my employees can sit online now. They can process submittals and requisitions and everything because they have all the documents right there online with them. So what they do is they click on the drawings section, they look at the drawing, they can you know, do the evaluation of the submittal and stuff and process it. They can do it. I just think that even something as simple as this coronavirus, which is obviously a serious consideration, is gonna have a profound, profound impact on the way we conduct business in society. Think about all those universities now that have dismissed classes on campus and going online. How many of those universities are going to come back now? They're not, the universities have changed. The fact that they're going to be shutting down universities for an entire semester says, do we really need universities? Of course we need universities and stuff, but do we need the classic university where you have a campus and everything else when if things can be taught online, Think about it. How many more gyms are they going to be building? How many more dormitories? Are How much of a cost impact you? How much faculty do you need? I mean, these are going to have profound effects. Nobody's thinking about that today. Because and here, but here we're forced to. I mean, because of a crisis, we're forced to think about that. And then how will we respond? I mean, once you see something done differently, it's hard to go back. Absolutely. You know, if it's done differently well. So, um, but, but I mean, it, it is the vision. So, I mean, I, as we, as we close here, I mean, I, I do want to, you know, allow the listeners to find out, you know, how they can connect with you to learn more about Helen Carl and, and bid docs online. Um, but it really is just it, what we've talked about today, you know, is just, it, it's a way to look at the future. It's a way to look at technology um, and a way to it sort of improve the experience for, you know, our clients, the industry as a whole, and, and those that, that we work with. Yeah, so, um, well, again, thank you for having me on this uh, podcast. Uh, anybody wants to go to BidDocs, they can go to uh, BidDocsOnline.com, you know, and you'll be able to see it. It's not a very informative because basically you have to have projects and everything, but if nothing else, you can look at the projects that are bidding and the way the information is displayed and everything. Um, there's a contact us at the bottom there. If you have questions, interested in talking to us about the service or something, feel free to reach out. That's the easiest way to get to us. Um, so, I mean, that's the easiest way to you know, find out about bid docs and stuff. Helen Carl Architects, again, you can just, you know, Google us and you can send us an email and that's at hka at npv.com. And I'll be happy to send that to you, Pete, if anybody wants to, you know, get that information. We'll include that in the show notes also. Sure, great. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, that again, I, I walk away from this, I would just say, 
look around you, technology is changing, life is changing, the business practice is changing and everything. Some of them are uh, self-imposed, like us trying to uh, turn things into products and stuff. Other things like this coronavirus are gonna have profound impacts that nobody's even thinking about now because we're in the heat, heat, heat of stuff. But it's gonna impact our business and stuff. And I guess the question is, is, I believe we all have a responsibility. Fortunately, I had some great mentors when I was going through the industry. Uh, really appreciated, and I think that's you know given me the ability to do what we're doing. I would say the next generation of talent that's coming up and stuff, we've got to learn to talk their language as much as they need to learn to talk our language. Um, the fact is, they probably aren't going to lick stamps and send certified mail out anymore because I don't think most of them even know what that is. You know, <laughs> I'm being again somewhat facetious, um, but they're used to apps and stuff, and I think it's just a whole different generation of thinking that. I'm here to provide value, not just do laborious work. And there's where I think the technology can help. Let's get rid of the laborious work and the administrative functions and stuff so that we can actually focus on the talent um, and apply our talents and energies to the things that are important. And in this case, designing better buildings, processing better buildings, getting better production out of buildings, better, you know, just better everything and making life simpler in the right. industry. I think that's a great way to close, provide value and not laborious work. I, I think that that is that is great. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing. Um, there's just so much detail and I think value in what you've shared um, and that your, your process and, and how you got to where you are today um, and the detail involved and the thinking involved. So I just, I want to thank you for sharing. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. All right. Take care. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to get us established and I truly appreciate that. It also helps get the word out so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. So thank you. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.